welcome to episode Pentacast times five, or 250, if you're keeping track at home, of the Reformed Brotherhood. I am Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. There's nothing in this world I wouldn't Jesse, you're killing me. I got the I got the sound trimmed to this perfect little like five, <laughs> ten second segment before the music dips, and you just you just killed me. It's gonna be all off. I'm, gonna, I'm just it's gonna be like a held in a sneeze. Out. Well, yes. I figured I want to keep you on your toes. I'm always so thankful for anybody that's wondering why it sounds so good. That's due to Tony. He puts everything together, mixes it up, syncs everything together. So if you're looking for that person to give a little kudos to, it is my brother, Tony. I also accept money if you're looking to give a little kudos to me. <laughs> wow. Straight out the gate. Straight out the gate. So we're actually kind of doing, I want to say, what do we call this? Like an addendum, a reprisal, so to speak. Yeah. We actually just finished not long ago a whole series on church discipline. It was everybody's favorite series because whose head doesn't pop off the pillow in the morning and say, can I get a little church discipline? <laughs> And so we concluded that, but we're actually coming back with two topics, one on this episode and one to follow. And on this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about membership, but explicitly how that fits into this whole thing about church discipline. So we're going to get there, of course, but first we're going to do, we have our own discipline, which is affirmations and denials. So what are you denying on this episode, Tony? Oh, you're throwing me off here. (laughs) That's Uh, right. So... You know, I really wish that we could have gotten past COVID-related denials. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna jump right back in. So, <laughs> everybody stop, knows stop. Delta variant, end of the world. We we get it. Yeah, like it's it's happening. Uh, what I'm specifically denying is I saw this little cartoon the other day, and it was a I'm, I'm miming it here, like that helps our audience. It was a, like a profile view of a of a person wearing a surgical mask, and the strip says credibility, and the mask says CDC, and it was like fraying. And, and the, the idea is like the CDC, because they're reversing their recommendations, don't wear masks, wear masks, you know, this many people, that many people, whatever, that their credibility is waning. Now, I, I, don't, I don't have any invested interest in the CDC as an entity, like they're a, fa- a faulty, frail entity because it, it's a collection of faulty, frail humans studying a fallen creation with limited capacities, mostly from an atheist perspective. But what I do want to say is I'm a little bit concerned um, like, what would they want the CDC to do had the CDC come up with an idea based on data and then new data comes out that contradicts their previous right. idea and the previous understanding? Or, or maybe it doesn't even contradict it, but just changes it. Or, or in this case, a new situation comes up. We're dealing with a, a, a new variant of a virus that behaves very differently and more rapidly than the other variants that we're like, what would they want them to do? Like just pretend that the new data didn't exist. So it's kind of one of those things. Like when I look at the people who are really, really critical of the CDC, it's like the CDC can't win no matter what it does. And what that usually tells me at that is that the criticism and the distrust is not really about the science or the credibility of the institution or the reports. There's something more presuppositional about the nature of government agencies, and that's fine, but I wish people would be more explicit about that. So in case people don't know, the Delta variant is a new variant of the coronavirus, and it behaves differently. Specifically, it reproduces much more rapidly, and so the viruses uh, are more present in your body, which makes it more contagious, 
And the vaccines that are widely available, especially in the United States, were designed not with the Delta variant in mind because it didn't exist at the time. So, of course, the recommendation has to change because the situation has changed. So I, I'm not, like I said, I don't care whether you trust the CDC or not. I don't care. I mean, I want people to wear masks if that's what's good for for society, if that's what helps stop the spread of this thing. I'm very pro-vaccine. I think the vaccines are good and safe, and I think they work. But I wish people would be more transparent. Maybe they just need to be more honest with themselves about why it is they distrust the CDC or insert X scientific or government agency. Precept on precept yes. on precept. Yeah. yeah, there's no doubt about that. I'm just going to parlay off of that. I, you always have like some interesting denials, and then I have one in mind, and then I like to change it. You do. You keep me guessing. Although I didn't, I, wanna, I never know what you're going to deny ahead of time anyway, yeah, so I well, guess I'm not wanna, really guessing. I'm going to tack on to yours, since I guess we're going back a little bit, back to the future. We're reprising some of the good old-fashioned denials that we had before. I'm going to do the same thing, and I'm just going to say I think this is, again, for the most part, just about rights and wanting to assert some kind of independence that... Like in reality, you know, this old joke about like saying like, oh, you're a flip flopper and be like, well, there's a this line from that show Parks and Rec where one of the characters is accused as she applies for uh, council. I forget what it was like some kind of local council. Yeah, like city council. That she was going to she was flip flopping and she was like, well, if by that you mean I got new information and I changed my mind because the new information helped me to see that either what I thought was wrong or untenable before, then yes, I'm a flip flopper. And in that way. We all ought to achieve or aspire to be that kind of person. That's even in like, if we're talking about like Semper Informanda, like, isn't that in its way, like, like that's you're theologically flip-flopping because you're continuing to be changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit as he hopefully enlightens our minds and our hearts to what the scriptures mean and how God ought to have us to live. Then I'm a flip-flopper. So, I mean, the bottom line is, I think this is more about, Rights. So the denial comes in. I'm just, come on, people. We got to be really honest with ourselves. Yeah. So I'm denying against creating superficial reasons to hate certain things or to be annoyed with certain things when it might just be, it just rubs us the wrong yeah. way. We don't want to go back to masks. Don't yeah. tell us the masks are back. Or like, shouldn't you have figured that out? Or shouldn't things have been better? Like, how many times of our own lives could we have made that same argument against ourselves with respect to relationships or tasks? Or, yeah. Yes. So, yeah. Come on. Speaking of masks. Uh, I, I, you know, I was wondering the day why we haven't sold any of these. And then I realized it's because we, we never told anybody that we were selling these. If you want to buy a mask, if you want to protect <laughs> the world from the Delta variant, <laughs> we now have Reform Brotherhood masks available at store.reformbrotherhood.com. You can pick it up. It's that nice cartoon logo of Jesse, but right, Jesse and me right on your mouth, right out there in front of the world. So that's, that's what we do. We're saving the world um. one viral viral particle at a time i guess we're trying this is what makes us a top 50 healthcare podcast we gotta be in the top 10 by now yeah i'd I'd like to think we're advancing yeah i'd I'd hope so i don't know when the new ranking is going to come out we haven't yet been invited to vegas usually we get that call at some point i feel like it's probably because of the coronavirus i don't think they have the conference this year it's possible i mean maybe lots of podcasts have their own you know protective mask i actually have i have one of these masks it is I think I told you this when I got it. I was like, it's shockingly comfortable. <laughs> it's actually a pretty decent mask. It's like fitted, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And like the material is, is, is really kind of soft and it's, I don't know, it just, it made my ears. It's better than some of the other masks I've worn. So I will say it's a little bit weird. I've worn it in, I've worn it in church, worn it in lots of places. There was one time I wore it to church and that was the only one I had on me. And I was like, ah, oh, I'm that guy, that guy who's like, <laughs> 
got his own, and I'm there's only one of that guy because it's not like this is like a common thing. I'm wearing a mask with my own face. Well, on there's it. two of that like, guy, Please. but I don't actually have a mask. I don't have one. Oh, you need to get one. I do need to get one. It's great. Where can I get one, Jesse? Uh, apparently, it's, it's store. That <laughs> reform. Isn't there just a link on the website? There is a link. You go to the reformbrotherhood.com website and you can click on join the brotherhood, and there's a link through there. Or you can go directly to store.reformbrotherhood.com. I think it's store. Maybe it's shop. I don't know. Try both of them. <laughs> if one of them will work. We're so well prepared, Jesse. Well, these affirmations, that was just totally free of charge. Doesn't even count, but let's get into the ones that do. What are you affirming? Yeah, so I'm affirming, uh, speaking of flip-flopping, I'm affirming a book by our favorite Lutheran, Chad Bird, and this book is called Unveiling Mercy, uh, and it is uh, basically the premise of the book, if you can say it has a premise. I don't know if this is the kind of book that has a premise, but it's uh, Chad took uh, a different Hebrew word or phrase uh, and created a little like maybe like a four or five, three or four paragraph devotional thought uh, based on that word. So for example, he has, um, let's see, let's see if I can find a Hebrew word that I can actually pronounce. Um, I can't pronounce that do one. Do you want my favorite? Do you want my favorite? Yeah. So what's far? your favorite one, Jesse? While I'm looking for I one, can't, I can't. So say. now I'm not gonna be able to come up with the word. It's somewhere I think in J- early July. Golden hemorrhoids. Golden hemorrhoids. That's, oh, from, that's the title from uh, from Judges. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So like this is the one from January fifth. Uh, the English is "Let there be light," and the Hebrew is "Yehi Ahor," or "Yehi Or" is the the Hebrew. And if you read Hebrew, it's got the Hebrew actual letters there. So if you want to get a tattoo, I guess of the Hebrew, if you're one of those people, uh, I'm one of those people. I have a Greek <laughs> tattoo on my arm. Um, but yeah, so he just takes it. It's a it's a one word or a, a short phrase. He kind of distills that out, and then he connects it to what Christ has done for us. So it's 365 days. It's a devotional. It's short. Probably take you two, three minutes at most to read through what he has to say. Um, so it's a great book. I haven't really started it much. I've browsed through it a little bit, but it is a great book. I think it'll help your spiritual walk. Um, and uh, he's a Lutheran, which is always nice to hear Lutherans talk, I guess. I don't know. I like the Lutherans. <laughs> Speaking of football. I like that. So, and actually to set up something at the end, listened all the way through as if you were going to stop at this point, but listen all the way through because again, we've got a contest going on right now to win some books by what I'm calling our Lutherans in residence as part of the yes. Reformed Brotherhood. Yeah. That would be Chad Bird and Eric Sorensen. They have a, between the two of them, three amazing books, more than that actually, but three that we're giving away. We'll give you more details about that. That's true. In the, the most complicated giveaway ever. We don't mess around. Only our listeners are are competent enough to be able to manage this. Mo- I can't even manage this giveaway. So we had to refresh ourselves before we, we did, sat down. And we probably got it wrong. <laughs> so, But somebody's going to win. It might as well be you, dear brother or sister. It's true. So, Jesse, what are you affirming this week? I'm going a totally different path. I'm just going to affirm a whole company. One that I'm, I only recently became familiar with. I'm not sure if many people are familiar with it. It's called Flowfold. Are you familiar with them? I am not. I thought you were going to say GameStop. No, no, GameStop. It's another podcast. So Flowfold, you can look them up, flowfold.com. Here's what's great about this. I found them because my wife wanted a new purse and she had like very specific things that she wanted in a purse. Need to be like over the shoulder. Need to be like a little bit retro. Need to be super sturdy. So I just found this site and we, I ordered this purse for her. She loves it. And I've actually grown to love it. Not that I'm using it, but I mean, 
I, I went back here and I actually just recently ordered something else for her for an upcoming birthday. But the interesting thing about this company is basically they're making all kinds of wallets, bags, backpacks, accessories. It's all from mostly recycled sailcloth and it is ridiculously uh, like strong. It's, yeah. it's amazing. It's, uh, it's thoughtful. It's not inexpensive, but I can say that it's definitely worth what you pay for it because this will be among like the last wallet or bag or backpack or knapsack that you get because it's just, this stuff is, is beastly. It looks great. It's kind of super cool. It's a little bit retro, but it's also a company that's out of Maine. Everything's produced in the United States. So it's just like a really unique business. And I think this product really stands up. So if you're looking for like a bag that you just want to beat the heck out of, and you need something that's going to be super tough and durable without like sacrificing comfort and quality, this is great. I recommend Flowfold. Yeah, I'm looking at their website right now, and I do want to say, if you are in the market for a fanny pack, you can get a, <laughs> get a wicked awesome fanny pack from Maine made out of sailcloth. They have a couple yeah. different models, actually. Yeah, so here's the thing. I kind of feel like they know their lane, and they're just like unashamed about that. They're, they're definitely very forthright about the fanny pack. It's yeah. like... The fanny pack, in other words, for them is not like this throwaway thing like that was just from like the 80s. They're like, no, no, no. We do the fanny pack and we do it well. And again, if maybe you have a fanny pack, but for whatever reason, you just wear out your fanny packs really fast. You're just trying this, to see how many times you can say fanny in, in like a short well, period I just of time. mean, I think that this would be the kind of thing that you would want to get. Also, yeah. I can't believe that no, you know, like there's so many different purveyors now of like reformed wear and there's like like reformed sage and missional wear and like reform wear all this stuff how is somebody not from like the christian realm taking the fanny pack and market that around like the fanny crosby pack like something like that I, it feels like a lost opportunity uh, i feel like i'm gonna get to get on that opportunity right after this episode's done recording <laughs> We'll see so if my provider for, we do have fanny packs available. So maybe in the next couple of weeks, you can purchase a sweet reform brotherhood, fanny Crosby pack or something like that. <laughs> I love it. it keep it your, stores. you can keep your, your, your pocket salter in there. Yes. That's and you don't need say. any instruments. So you, no. you're all good. You just keep your pocket. You're like your 1689, uh, not 1689, like the, the, uh, Psalms of David and meter, like the pocket yes. edition right in there. Yes. I was going to try to come up with a date, but now I can't yeah, I remember. remember. I, I feel like I've I recently texted stuck you. in my head. I can't get that out. Listen, you and me both, brother. Yeah. All right. All so. of our Baptist listeners are like, yay. <laughs> I do love that. I was thinking about this recently about how like fun numbers are. And did we like miss the boat? So like, again, we, when we talked to our Lutherans and residents, they're part of that nonprofit 1517 yeah. got 1689 now plastered on hats and everything else. Like, did, should we have like, gone with some kind of number? In our podcast name, I don't Seems know. Seems like the rage. I would have to come up with like an average. Be like seventeen eighty-eight plus sixteen eighty-nine. Yeah, some esoteric number that's like when people see that, be like, "What does that mean?" And then we can say like it has some like amazing. It'd be like seventeen thirty-eight point five dot org. Yes. Yeah. Although, like, I think I want to start like uh, we need like some kind of like I would say this is best suited to like a punk rock band, but I want to create a band called the sixteen eighty-nines. Yeah, that'd be a good band. Yeah, I, I mean, so. it wouldn't be as good as the 1646s, but... But that's also kind of has a ring to it. I kind of it like does. the 46s. It's true. It yeah. has a better ring. 
I had to get back to the. I had we to get never, back to the right numbers here. We never miss an opportunity. It's true. We never miss an opportunity. Well, speaking of bands getting the band back together, people banding together, maybe people being members of something together. Let's talk about membership. And again, uh, as we said, we're kind of we're kind of tacking this on, but not really because I think. This is, we've, we have, in, by the way, full disclosure, because somebody will email us right away. I want to head this off and say, like, you've already done an episode on church membership. Wasn't that the definitive episode? Listener, you are correct. That was a definitive episode. This is like the definitive episode in bringing it together and how we dovetail it. Or what was the ducktail? Ducktail it. Ducktail. How we ducktail it together with what we've been talking about with church discipline. So I think we're going to go probably in all the directions and in many directions with this, but I think we should say this uh, kind of the outset. Some of this is maybe summer from where we were before, but here's what I would say to introduce this topic for us is I think there is a reasonable question. The question is reasonable per se. Is church membership biblical? I think at the heart, this is where a lot of people uh, start. They get stuck in the answer but I think it's okay to ask this if the question is coming from a genuine uh, perspective of wanting to understand what a responsibility is with this. Because for churches that promulgate membership, I think there's usually, in my experience, you let me know if this is yours too, there's usually like a fair share of members. But there's also, I find, usually no small number of people who, for a variety of reasons, regularly attend. Maybe they're even quite involved or committed to body life of the church. And they haven't yet gone through that formal process yeah. of becoming members. Now, sometimes maybe that's because of like the, the regular schedule of how that process happens and the formal training or the, the classroom education that's happened. That's fair. But I think some people actually object to membership on biblical, on biblical grounds or trying to use biblical grounds by saying something like, well, I don't need to take a class and sign some document to be connected with this local assembly. It's really about a heart commitment. It's not about a piece of paper. And there might be other kind of like sundry various explanations to that effect. But when we hear membership, I think sometimes in our culture, we immediately think of things like Costco or health club. We think of like signing contracts or paying dues and getting special ID cards. So we should just say at at the front of this, that we kind of need to answer this question because it does ducktail with this idea of church discipline, whether or not church membership is even biblical. So how is my experience, like your experience as well for churches? That, and yeah. that's, I think we've both been a part of churches that have been like membership is important. This is something you need to get after. And yet we still find that there are two groups of people. Yeah. There, there's always going to be some people at a church who are not yet members Right, for whatever reason, right. uh, they are they're in the process. They they just started. They don't know that membership is a thing at this church. Whatever the reason, if they had the opportunity and knowledge and wherewithal, they would become members. Then there are are this group of people that will never become members at any church out of principle. And you know th- this episode's not like what what's wrong with those people? Like th- there there are people <laughs> who have. Uh, I don't want to say they're biblical arguments because I don't think that's what the Bible teaches, but they have arguments that are grounded in their interpretation of the scripture for why membership is not required. Uh, Sometimes that is simply a matter of saying membership does not appear in the Bible. It's it's something that we've added on top of it. And I I don't think that that's the case. Um, And and we'll talk about the different biblical evidences just in case people are looking for it. The the episode we did before on church membership was episode 23. We're going to cover a lot of that same ground. So if you want to go back and listen to it, more power to you, but you don't have to. And and what I find is that the the people who um, argue 
that church membership does not appear in the in the Bible, um, they aren't understanding firstly the continuity between how Old Testament Israel and the church functions. Like that, there's right. a, there's an organic continuity that happens there. So it actually is really prominent in in, as in my experience among dispensational people that the, because there's this firm distinction where Israel is this physical covenant and the the New Testament and the church is this spiritual covenant that something as as uh carnal and corporeal and physical as like a membership role is not part of the new covenant even though it was part in, in a certain sense you know you see these in like the genealogies it was part of the old covenant but then also I also think that they are are failing to understand some of what we learn about the New Testament is implicit in the text in that this is a text that was generated and was created out of a context. You know, it was created not not out of context, but out of a context. The New Testament church, as it existed, is what produced the documents. I know like, yes, we can, theologically, we have to say that the church is constituted by the Bible, but the the reality is, is that the church wrote the Bible, the the, the church, uh, the documents that uh, came to be the Bible and were always inspired of God. They didn't become the word of God. They were always the word of God, but came to be collected and recognized in the canon. They came to be by the writing of men in the church. So some things that we look at in the New Testament, we have to understand and be able to trace how it's implicit. The doctrine of the Trinity functions this way. There's no there's no spelled out place in the scripture in the New Testament where Paul's like, all right, here, I'm going to I'm going to sit down, we're going to explain what the doctrine of the Trinity is, we're going to go through it from start to finish. Because that was already an, a a doctrine that was existing and was already taken root in the church and was already held by the church. So Paul presupposes the doctrine of the Trinity in somewhere like Romans 8, where he can talk about the Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of God in the same paragraph and not have to explain what he means by that. Right. Church membership in the New Testament functions in largely the same way. When we see how the church functions and the commands that Paul gives to people or the commands that the author of the book of Hebrews gives to people or the the way that Paul instructs Timothy to set up the church, to, to, to ordain elders and to enroll widows, all of these things that we'll get to, the way Jesus commands us to do church discipline, which is where we're going to latch in here, all of those things presuppose an existing structure that the New Testament documents were were. Already, it was already in the air that they were breathing. So it's not as though Paul writes to the Ephesians and is like, all right, so there's this thing called a church. Here's what a church is. Let me define right. church for you. He was writing to a church, so he didn't have to do that. And we have to think about church discipline in large part in that way. There are some texts that we can go to in the New Testament, and we'll talk about some of them, but where you can build a positive construction theology of church membership from those texts by way of command. But most of where we build a theology of church membership comes in understanding the context that is necessary for these letters to even make sense in the first place. So we've obviously already tipped our hand here, partly because we did an episode that right. apparently was like years ago. It was over it was... 225 episodes ago, yeah, Jesse. I did not realize crazy. it was so so early on. We were really on the money back then. But this idea that we're saying is basically a member as we understand it in the way that we're using it right now in the context that we live is a biblical world, a word. And I like what you said about how it's helpful for us to remember that in many ways we're carrying forward. Paul was carrying forward. He was just kind of in this stream of what God had already done in establishing his people from the beginning of time, that God is always in the business of calling a group onto himself, of saving them, of doing his redeeming work. And then in so much as doing that, uniting them in a profound way. And there was a time, of course, when that was centered on Israel, the nation. 
And now through, of course, through Abraham being given this promise that through him, all nations will be blessed. That what we're seeing when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus is we're seeing him just basically kind of reference that manifestation as if like we should know this is always the way it's been. And so also is it now, but it's now on this side of the cross. So perhaps one of those texts you were, were speaking to would be Ephesians 2.17, which I almost hate to quote because this is the one that gets brought up a lot. Yeah. But let me just list, read it so we can give like some basic context to again further the conversation. So Paul writes, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So there actually you have everything you just said, Tony, like you can see him reaching all the way back. There's the apostles and the prophets that all that we spoke of is manifested in this membership of the household of God. So we've got, of course, first, there's this connotation of familial connectivity right? that is Christians have called one another brother and sister since like the earliest days of the church. And in a modern culture where we'd like to have nicknames for each other that again, connote some kind of sense of intimacy. We don't use these things to try to like remind us there is intimacy. We use these words because there is intimacy. So right. like when I say to you or to the brothers and sisters that are listening, I really mean that, that what that's saying is we all share a connection that is not natural. It's not natural sisterhood or brotherhood. It is supernatural. And so by virtue of that fact, there is something already that God has manifested in our presence by bringing us together. And these labels aren't just jargon. They make a theological statement about who we are as members of God's covenant family. And the question before us then is we're saying, well, all of this is true. Well, then why not just leave it like that? What we're saying is if this is true, it should propel us forward into making a formal and official commitment to a particular body of believers so that we might have this kind of more formal sense of accountability and strength in moving forward through sanctification and in living the Christian life together. Yeah. And, and, you know, that perspective of like, well, why not just leave it at this sort of informal spiritual fellowship? That's actually an overrealized ecclesiology. And what, what I mean yes. by that is that yeah. what it does is it looks at the church as it will be after Christ makes all things right in, in the eschaton, in the last days, in, in the resurrection. It looks at the way things will be, and it tries to drag that forward and apply that to the way things are. And the reality is that we live in this in-between time where the, the church has been inaugurated, but has not been consummated, has not been made full and complete as it will be when it's made perfect. And so this imperf- imperfect area that we live, this imperfect uh, in-between time that we live in, we can't act as though the true, genuine, complete, perfect spiritual fellowship of all Christians that will be a reality at some point in the future it is unwise and it's it's self-deceptive of us to act as though that reality is true now because it's not right i'm not i'm not united in the same way that i will be to all christians everywhere and so right now the church is time bound and space bound in a way that it it will still be time and space bound in the eschaton but in a different sense so as it stands now we have to have these sort of particularized local bodies the other thing is that this is a church in exile right? We're still strangers right. and aliens in a foreign world. 
uh, in a, in a real sense. And so we, we don't have the ability to simply have the church be everywhere. The church exists in these little pockets of believers that gather together on the Lord's day. And so when, when we talk about church membership, what we're not, what we're talking about is a, a genuine, uh, connectivity, a genuine association that requires some sort of official formal acknowledgement of it, right? We've right. we've talked about this. I think we talked about it last when we did the um, Lord's Supper, uh, when we did a Q&A after the Lord's Supper series. Someone asked me, like, can you make an argument for ordained elders only giving communion? And what we talked about is, like, every organization has officers and has official agents that are authorized to act on behalf of an organization. That's how organizations, which are not a thing in and of themselves, that's how they actually do things, is they have official appointed um, agents that act on behalf of the organization. And the church itself has these official appointed uh, agents in the office of elder and in a, in a different sense in the office of deacon. And so those official appointed agents have responsibility over groups of Christians that are under their jurisdiction or under their sphere of authority or sphere of influence, however you want to phrase it. And so that itself necessitates some form of, of formal official recognition. These groups of this group of agents recognizes this group of members that they are responsible for and responsible to. That's the really important part. And so this membership uh, mechanism that we have, again, is presupposed in the office of elder and deacon, because not every pastor or elder is responsible for every Christian. I'm an elder at this church. And so I'm responsible for the members of this church. Right. I, there are people at this church who are not members. There, there's a there's people who are you know kind of what you're describing, like the people who are long term committed people. I have a responsibility to and for them as well, but it's a different kind of responsibility than the people that I have formal association with who are members of the church. And this is this is a thing that I don't. Sometimes people get like wrapped up in like, all right, is there a list of names somewhere? Is there is there a membership role? Is <laughs> right. there a spreadsheet? You know, is right. there? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that's important. I think that somewhat is a circumstance, right? When we talk about the difference between elements and circumstances, what fundamentally what church membership is is a group of people who have sworn solemn vows to associate right. with each other. Now, right. whether that exists on some piece of paper somewhere with a list of names or exists on a spreadsheet somewhere in a computer somewhere, that I don't really care as much about. But the the people that are at this church, I have sworn, I mean, I'd say I didn't, I didn't take like elder vows when I was elected as an elder, but when I accepted the office of elder at this church, there was a set of responsibilities that I, uh, I assumed and I was taking responsibility for. And those people are the ones that elected me and are accountable to. And they've sworn vows as members of this church. So it, it creates this relationship that is a formalized, real, concrete relationship that enables church discipline and church membership and church responsibility and accountability. It enables that to actually exist. This other person who's a part of this church, she had no say in whether or not I was, became an elder, whether or not I was elected as an elder. She was at the meeting, but she doesn't get to vote. She's allowed to speak during the meeting, but what she says only means so much in terms of influence. And uh, I have no real say in her life spiritually. I can certainly, as a, a Christian to a Christian, I can try to hold people accountable the way that I might hold 
Jesse accountable or someone else that I know online accountable, but I can't hold this person accountable in the office of elder the way that I could with someone here who's a member of the congregation. And that's why membership is important, I think. And that's why it keys in and latches into this church discipline uh, model that we're kind of, kind of further expanding with this episode. Yeah. Because in many ways what we're saying here is church membership is an open invitation to have the kind of accountability and growth that we desperately need. I mean, after hearing what you said, it strikes me that it means two things, just based on those comments. One, I think it means that you realize that you're not only called to Jesus, but you're called into a community. And again, you might have some that would say, well, listen, I can be a part of this community without somehow having to like, you know, do this particular thing that you want me to go through or jump through hoops. And I'm not addressing those who might say, well, I'm still trying to understand this church. I'm new here. I'm trying to get my bearings about the theology. I'm not addressing that. If I can be dramatic for a second, it does though strike me for those who'd be like long-term, let's say attenders, but desire not to be members. It's a bit like cohabitating versus marriage. Like with with the vow structure that you're giving there, you're basically saying, I'm inviting you into my life. I'm inviting accountability. I'm also inviting participation. So I think it was like, you're probably going to catch me on this. I think it was like Cyprian of Carthage who said something like outside the church, there is no salvation. And, you know, obviously we don't believe I'm good there. You got it. Yeah. I mean, uh, like everyone like, and their mother after that has said it, but they're all <laughs> they're all going back to Cyprian in one way. Yeah, or another. I was gonna say I feel like he was the one that was the first to coin. Yeah, that as far as respects. I know, he was the first person to say, you know, there's no salvation outside the church. So, like, obviously, what we're not saying we don't believe it means that people are saved through becoming members. We don't believe it means that if people believe in Jesus but aren't part of a local church or some assembly or gathered body, that they aren't saved. Um, what we're, I think we're trying to say here is like, that's kind of a powerful rhetorical shorthand for when God saves, he ordinarily, naturally, necessarily draws us into community with other Christ followers. And we're meant to be true participatory actors in that community, which means both that we care for one another in a solemn way. We're vowing to take responsibility for each other, but we're also vowing to be corrected, to be humbled to be worked on with each other and that our communion is necessarily vertical and horizontal. So that's the first thing. But the second thing that you said that really struck me that I think it also means is that we're recognizing that we're weak and that we therefore need like the deepest amount of commitment and accountability to support that weakness. That membership reflects this full understanding of really how weak we are and how much we desperately need every tool that God has given us for our sanctification and our growth. And that's what I struggle with when people say they don't want to be members, because to me, it seems like you just don't want to step into that. Maybe it's a a matter of vulnerability. Maybe it's just a matter of bristling that you have to do something, that you have to give up a right, that you have to feel like you're going to be less independent now because you are somehow intimately connected. You can't just pick up and leave as easily, that there is some sense that somebody's going to call you out on something, maybe ask where you were or ask what you're doing actively to serve in the church. And if all those are the reasons for membership, then we're, we're far away from somehow making the case that's not biblical. What we're really saying is, I just prefer to be more independent and to treat the church in some way like it's a product that I can consume on my own volition. Yeah. Yeah. I want to I wanna um, just read a couple passages here because I think, you know, we've made the statement that the, the Bible teaches church membership. And I actually think you know, although I'm not super committed to the idea that there has to be like a list, I think there should be. And I actually think that there's biblical evidence that the early church 
kept these kind of lists, right? So just go into uh, Acts chapter 6. Uh, I'm going to just start reading in verse 1. It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in, num- in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Right. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So so two things that jumps out in this passage that teach us that the early church not only had this concept of some sort of formal association, but they had actual like structured lists of some sort is, first of all, there was a group of widows and they knew who they were and they knew uh, when they were being neglected. They also knew who the Hellenists and the Hebrews were. So there appears to be these sort of structured ideas, structured lists. Maybe there wasn't a parchment. Maybe someone just remembered. Maybe someone just knew who these people were. But there was some sort of documented, understood understanding of who was part of the church and even what kind, what kind of what classification each person was. And then it says they summon the full number of the disciples. Now, if you read this too quickly, you might think that they're talking about the twelve, but it's the twelve disciples or the twelve apostles who summon the full number of the disciples. So I suppose this could be talking about the seventy-two disciples that Jesus sent out, possibly. But more than likely, this is actually just referring to the full number of the church, particularly there in Jerusalem. So what we have in the early church is we have this picture of a local congregation in Jerusalem that has a list of uh, who's a part of the church. They have a full number. They're able to summon the full congregation. They're able to call a congregational meeting and form a quorum, if we want to kind of put it in our own modern Robert's Rules of Order language. So Presbyterian. Right? They can summon a, They can summon the church. They can call a congregational meeting with a quorum because they know who's supposed to be there, who's a part of the church, and how many of them there are. And then just, you know, for everybody who's going, well, yeah, Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. Flip over to First uh, Timothy 5.9. I said that really snarky. I don't know why I said that so snarky. (laughs) X is descriptive, not prescriptive. But uh, Timothy is prescriptive, right? So in 1 Timothy 5.9, we have a picture of what Paul is saying. So this also tells us, right, this is towards the end of Paul's ministry. So we're talking about probably 40 or 50 years later, uh, or 30 or 40 years later from when this happened in in Jerusalem with the, the first kind of group of deacons, right? It says in, uh, starting in verse nine, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the husband of one wife, having a reputation for good works, if she's been brought up children, has shown hospitality, so on and so forth. And then it says in verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and in so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. So this, this, uh, this thing that happened in the very earliest days of the church, so we're probably talking about 35, 40 AD, somewhere in there, where there's this group of widows. We have every good reason to think that there was a list because we knew which we know which widows were being neglected, right? We know it was the Hebrew widows or the, the Hellenist widows that were being neglected. Well, then flash forward, you know, 20, 30 years later towards the end of Paul's ministry, Paul seems to be perpetuating this same process of enrolling widows, right? So, so... Right. We know at the very least that the church kept a record of which widows it was supporting, 
uh, through their diaconal services or funding, whatever, it kept a list of which widows, and they enrolled widows. It's not too much of a leap forward to assume or to think that there's actually a listing of all of the Christians. And it's also not too much of a leap forward to think that this list was probably sent to other churches. And the reason I say that is if you look at the end of Romans, and it's important to remember, Paul had never visited the church in Rome. He's not writing to a group of believers that he has met before. He's writing to a group of believers he's never had contact with. Yet at the end of the the letter, where most of the time in our letters, the people that we would want to address the letter to come up front, in uh, these other kinds of letters, a lot of times the list of addressees would end up at the end, and that's because they were on a scroll. And so the first thing you see on the scroll when you unroll it is the end of the letter, well, then the beginning of the letter is where the, uh, the, the signature is, right? That's why Paul identifies himself right. at the beginning of the scroll, because it was exactly reversed from the way we write it. He's got this whole list of people that he knew were, were members or were part of the church in Rome, even though he had never met them. So somehow there's this collection of names. There's this either it's a document that had been passed around, or maybe there was people who went from church to church and kind of gave updates on which people had joined the church and which people may have left the church. All of that seems to be happening in the very earliest testimony of the church. And this is the kind of thing that Jesse and I are talking about when we say, when you look at the New Testament carefully and you understand what's happening, these documents show us a church that already had formal membership in place. And the reason for that is because that is how the church had to be structured in order for it to be the kind of organization or the kind of entity, whatever you want to call it, the kind of group, the kind of body of people that Jesus intended it to be. And now I want to kind of flip over into the church discipline discussion, right? Because that's a lot of the same ground we covered when we talked about this 227 episodes ago, however many it was. The church discipline element of this is really important because all of the stuff we've said about church discipline in the previous two episodes, you know, the first one was about the actual biblical evidence, the, the mechanics of it. The second one was how do we apply this? All of that only functions in the context where we can identify which Christians are part of which group of which body of Christians, which individual Christian is associated with which formal collection of Christians and are accountable to which elder and deacon, which elders and deacons. Right on. Yeah, that's that's really that's really helpful because I think. What you're emphasizing there, it will almost like to head off because I can see this as an objective. People saying, well, are you sure that's not universal? Are you sure it's particular? And in what you were just referencing there, I think it seems that in Paul, there is room for both. However, there's certainly times when he's addressing body theology and like the way he speaks indicates the particular churches in one body, many parts discussions. So there would seem that Paul is making this case that each local church is an integral whole such that each person in it fulfills a role in making it the body. And that does, I think, lead us directly to church discipline because if we're undertaking membership the way that we understand the Bible is explaining it to us, then I think what we're saying is we're taking discipleship under Christ very seriously because we're choosing to submit to Christ and those whom Christ has put in spiritual authority over us we're willingly placing ourselves under accountability and we're guarding ourselves from sin and temptation in a greater way. And if somebody needs to come into my life to promote rescue because I have 
sinned intentionally, I have continued in that sin, I'm unrepentant, then like we've talked about before, part of church discipline is this grand rescue, that God is always the rescuer, and he's using the means of the church to do that. But really, quite honestly, that can only really happen in its fullest sense when it's among the membership, when it's people who have said, I'm committed to this body, and I'm vowing in that commitment in a way that is demonstrative. So again, it strikes me when you're given that example of acts that let's say even if there wasn't like a list, like a formal list, even if like somebody had memorized it, at least what's I'd say at the bare minimum applied there is the fact that these people self-identified that brothers and sisters were like, I'm in, I'm right. all in on this thing. I'm all in on this thing of the church in Jerusalem so that it was clear like, oh yeah, go get like Dan because he's all in. How, well, how do you know? Because he's expressed that he's committed right. himself to this group and he's special and set apart in that way. Be, and that's not like to your point where we say, well, listen, we're just going to treat, we're going to have like two groups, like all the non-members sit in the back because yeah. like you're of a lesser class or scale, some, some sub genre of those whom we should love and serve and participate. That's not what we're saying. But I think what we are saying is that there is a special commitment represented in membership that is like the fullest embodiment of what Christ would have for us in our community with the church on earth right now. And then we just got to like really take that seriously. And that church discipline, I think, really can only happen in the context of membership. It's much more complicated and much less effective outside of that, not because the method that God prescribes is such, but merely because, again, we have people who aren't really fully committed. Like we have separated hearts or divided minds. And part of what I get confused about is why? Yeah. Like if you're saying like, listen, no, I'm, I'm totally committed to my church and I'm, I know I'm here, aren't I? And I'm serving in these capacities. Then might one ask, well, then why not? Yeah. And you know what I found too, and this is, this is a little bit of, um, abstraction and and speculation from previous churches I've been in. I know that there are people who say, yeah, I mean, I don't believe in membership, but I'm just as committed to this church as if, as if I was a member, first of all, okay, then why aren't you becoming a member? If your commitment is identical, whether you sign a piece of paper or not, then why not sign the piece of paper and actually formalize it? But that aside, I actually don't think most of the time those people are as committed in, in observation. I think that my experience has been that the people who hold a theology of uh, of church that doesn't have a place for formal church membership, they actually tend to be the people who are the first to cut and run. They tend right. to be the people who uh, who aren't willing or aren't aren't able or aren't willing to uh, sign up to help when things are are happening. They're the ones that uh, typically are less likely to give of their time and treasure than people who are formally associated. And I know there are exceptions, but those exceptions I think actually prove the rule. Because right. in my in my experience, the person who who refuses to become a member for any reason, but especially the people who refuse to become a member on the grounds that church you know church membership isn't a biblical concept. I find those people often are the most detached from the church. And this makes sense to me. Like it makes sense to me that someone who makes a formal commitment to something is likely to be more committed than someone who doesn't make a formal commitment. It's just logic. Um, one more, one more passage I want to just point to, because I think, you know, I think sometimes people, people look at 
you know, like the key verses, the key passages that, that come up, the ones we've talked about, you know, the Matthew 18 passage is often brought up. But if what Jesse and I are saying are true, that church membership is just implicit in the New Testament, because that's just the world that, that the church existed in. That's just what the church was when these documents were created. We should be able to see little fingerprints in other areas that we wouldn't expect them. And one that right. I, I like to go to is actually in third John and it's verse nine. It says, I've written something to the church. First of all, okay, to the church. Well, obviously he's talking about a specific church to a specific group of people, not the church at, at large, right? I've written something to the church, but Diotrephus who likes to put himself first does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and stops those who want to and puts them out of the church, mm. right? So even in this little spot, which I, I would never go here as a primary proof text to, to build a, doc, you know, a doctrine of church membership, but this is another text that proves this, for, this idea that there is a group of people and that someone can be put out of that group of people. I mean, yes, right. maybe he's saying that Diotrephes sits at the door and physically keeps them from entering into the worship service. Maybe that's what he's saying. Probably not. More likely what it is, is Diotrephes is a bishop at this local church or an elder, a pastor, all those are interchangeable words. He's a pastor at this church, and he's basically excommunicating people. Well, none of that works if you can't be excommunicated if there's no communion to be excommunicated from. Right. Right. You can't be kicked out of a community if no, no such community actually exists. So whether it is this very formal membership roster, which I think I've, I, I think I've, I've proven at least that it's plausible that the early church maintained such a roster, whether it's this formal church membership roster or whether it is just a group of people that have sworn vows publicly to each other. And there's no, there's no like list in someone's head. It's not like someone can go through, right? This person, this person, this person, this person, but you know, who has sworn vows to you and who, who you sworn vows to. Like, those are things that we might take those more lightly now in our day, but I can right. tell you, like, if I've made a formal promise to someone, I'm going to remember that person that I made a formal promise to. Right. If I just told somebody that I was going to do something and it wasn't like a formal commitment, it was like, yeah, maybe I'll try to, maybe I'll try to stop by such and such a place. The reason you don't do it is because you forget it. But if I tell someone, I swear to you, I'm swearing an oath before God that I will meet you at such and such a place then that is a much deeper level of commitment. Whether it's that or whether it is this formal church membership roster that I, I think I see in the New Testament, both of those are not just, yeah, I mean, I'm committed to this body. I mean, I show up every Sunday. That's not what we're talking about. And the kind of church discipline that Jesus has in mind in Matthew, uh, Matthew 18, the kind of commitment to a group of people that the author of Hebrews talks about when he says, obey your elders, make their, you know, make their work a joy. They're responsible for your soul. Like that's not just, yeah, this person came, came to church, you know, they right, came to church exactly. regularly. The, the person who sits under the ministry of the teaching of the word, that pastor is responsible for their soul in terms of preaching the word faithfully to them. They are not accountable. They will not have to give an account for that person's soul unless there is a formal recognition and a, an oath-bound recognition of the, the union between those two people in covenant membership of church. Now, like I said, whether that's a name on a piece of paper or whether it's just a public vow of some sort, that that's how it works. We can't have this picture of like, yeah, Susie comes to church most of the time. And so they, you know, yeah. So then I'm responsible for their soul. 
Like that's not it's not a reasonable standard, and that's not how the Bible makes any of this work. I mean, that's like that's not how any of this works. It's not how any of this works. <laughs> I was waiting for you to do that. <laughs> I I unlike this. I unfollow you. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. And I guess I was gonna say like we're not trying to put people who maybe are long intended churches and been involved and said they're not going to be members. I was going to say, we don't mean to put them on blast, but I think we do a little bit. Yeah, and I kind of mean to the, put them on blast. Yeah. Well, just in the sense, I think I do too. It's just in the sense that like, listen, we all need to grow up at some point. We need to understand. And if maybe you're sitting here listening to this and thinking, well, I just don't know if I can be a member at my church. Well, that's a whole nother issue. And that's yeah. kind of a good litmus test, I think, for whether or not you're in the right church in terms of its theology or whatever it is that's causing you to question that. But I do think what worries me a little bit is that this whole idea is like totally nascent, that it's like within more recent history that all of a sudden we have Christians, maybe particularly in the West, who are saying things like, I can do this, but I don't have to be a member because it seems like a foreign idea to the people of God. Like, why would you not be in? Like, if you're all in, you're, you're all in and you should be able to commit and to make a vow to that extent. And so I do think that sometimes the reason why at the heart in the final analysis that people actively oppose membership, even though they would say like they're intimately involved in the church is actually because of the church discipline aspect, because it does open up the straight line of accountability and communication and at least theoretically transparency, because it's, you know, sometimes I think people choose not to be members because that they can just hold the church at arm's length then. And if they want out, if something were to go wrong, if something were to offend them, if someone were to displease them, it's just a lot easier. And in essence, because you don't have to provide an explanation, you don't have to meet with anybody, you know, it's, and again, that might be like, you know how they say, like, if you're not, uh, all I can do is think about this, like, even like romantically in other relationships. It's, it's as if you're saying, I'm committed to you, but not that much. Right. Like, I like you, but not that much. Yeah. And so it always leaves then this weird gap in this weird space as if you would just leave or depart at any given time. If something really happened that was to, you know, somehow override your sense of commitment that you just make in an informal sense. So in membership, you're forced to deal with issues from the inside rather than easily running away. You've made a commitment and backing out becomes much harder. Conflict, disagreement, hardship, all that stuff, which is present in the body can now be tools used by God for the growth and maturation of ourselves and the strength and edifying and purification of the church. When we take away membership, we take away that very thing. Yeah. And I think that's what we're saying. Like church membership is church discipline. Church discipline is church membership. They do fit together. There may be two gloves on different hands, but it's one of the things I see, I find as we kind of draw us to close, I find membership still underemphasized. I almost yeah. think, and this, this jumped out to me when you were speaking, if we're going to make it easy for our pastors and elders, let's become members. Right. Like if we're in, let's let them know that we're in, that we support that kind of uh, discipline, that we support that kind of uh, discipleship and let's make it clear to them yeah. and let's be helpful to them in that way. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a sort of like a, uh, first level test that I always apply to theological questions when I'm trying to get an idea of whether or not uh, I'm out of my mind or not. If all of the people that I consider theological heroes and role models believe one thing, and all of the people that I would look at as theological opponents or enemies, I guess, affirm something else— and I'm on the same side of things as the people that I would otherwise consider to be my theological opponents, then I probably need to step back and rethink think things. And, you know, this works with the Trinity, right? If I want to challenge the doctrine of simplicity, am I more like John Calvin or am I more like the radical Anabaptists? 
I'm much more like the radical Anabaptists and Socinians if I want to challenge divine simplicity. So that doesn't mean it's true. It doesn't mean it's biblical, but it's a good place for me to start to figure out if I'm out of my mind. Am I consistent with the people that I think are right about most things? Well, I think Calvin's right about most things. So I'm going to at least start with the assumption that he's probably also right about divine simplicity. Church membership is the same thing, right? Am I with John Calvin, who had rigorous lists of all of the members with assigned pastors and documents of all of the discipline that happened, when they attended church, how many times they took the Lord's Supper, whether or not they could recite the Lord's Prayer without error. All of these things are lists that they kept in Geneva. Am I more like that, or am I more like the Socinians and the Anabaptists who were like, the church is just a spiritual entity, there is no physical component to it? Which one of those is am I more like? Well, mm. I think John Calvin's right on most things. So I'm going to start with the assumption that his biblical exposition of the text that led him to this understanding of what it means to be the church and to have church membership is probably right. Now, maybe, maybe John Calvin just lost his mind when he was doing that part of his theology. Maybe, probably not. So I think, I think for, especially for people in our audience, I would actually be surprised if, if there was a sizable portion of our audience that was in that, I don't think church, church membership is in the Bible kind of a group, but especially in our audience, ask yourself the question, is it reasonable to think that John Calvin just totally blew it on that one? I mean, maybe it's possible, I guess. Is it reasonable to think that? Is it reasonable to think that we are the ones now, you know, 500 years later that got it right? right? When the vast majority of the church, his history has kept membership roles of some sort. And as I said, I've made the argument that I think it's at least plausible to see in the pages of the New Testament that they had church membership roles then, especially considering the fact that in Israel they had membership roles in the form of genealogies, that every Jew could tell you what their genealogy was, because that was how they proved membership in their particular tribe, which established them as a a member of the people of Israel, right? So I think that that's a reasonable argument that we can make. And I think, as I said, this all ties into church discipline because the model of church discipline that our Lord gives us assumes the idea that we can identify which particular local congregation a given member is a part of and a given Christian is a part of and accountable to. Because when it says take it to the church, right, I suppose theoretically I could take a complaint to the church global if I really wanted to. I could buy advertising and get that message out to every person, you know, reasonably in the church. That's not something you could do in the first century, right? You could you could maybe walk around and tell people in your town what happened if you if you wanted to say like, well, I just tell the people in my area. But more likely what that takes the form of, and we talked about this before, bringing it to the church, right? That first step is going to the person. That second step is going to probably that person's elders, ideally. That already presupposes that you know who those people's elders are. And then taking it to the church means that those elders bring it to the entire assembled body that that person is a part of. So that presupposes that that body has some sort of definition, right? They weren't just like, they weren't saying like, well, we'll go 50 miles and every Christian we find, we're going to bring together. They probably had a stated meeting. They had some time that they gathered 
And that was who you brought it to. That was the group of Christians that had accountability within their ranks, within their midst. So I, I don't want to belabor the point anymore, just because I think we've we've established our case and we've 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 tied it into where we wanted to go. But I would really challenge people who want to hold this position that like church membership's not a thing; it doesn't exist in the Bible. I really think you need to go back and take another look. I really think you need to try to figure out what it could mean for diatrophies to keep someone out of the church if there is no such thing as church membership, to try to try to figure out what it means that the Hellenist widows who were enrolled, uh, what that means absent some form of, of formal uh, enumerated church membership in the, in the early church. Really, really, I challenge you to figure out what that means. And I think, I hope, and I pray that what you'll find is that there isn't a way to explain those features of the New Testament without some sort of uh, established formalized church membership. Maybe he was just a bouncer. Yeah, he just, just stood at the door. Yeah, he, he was jacked. He had like tattoos. Yeah, he had he like just a, flexing. Yeah, he just had he a little just, rope. He had like a yep, a, like a velvet rope. That's what it is. Yep. Um, get rid of church membership. Let's just have a velvet rope every time someone <laughs> wants to come in the building. <laughs> That's Jesse's model of church discipline. Apparently, I, apparently, I guess that is. I just like the idea of him just being a bouncer. Yeah. Yeah. I find that again, if you're given the two choices, which one of those is more probable? It's true. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that was like the second order derivative of the most definitive conversation about yes. church membership and certainly as it relates to church discipline. But as we promised, we're going to close this out by reminding everybody that we do have this contest going on. If there's one thing that we can all agree on, no matter what, after this long, lengthy discussion, it's that books are amazing. We'd like more books. We'd like more time to read. So we can't give you more time to read, but we can give you more books. Yes. And so we've got a contest that's going on right now for three of those books. So the first is called The Christ Key by Chad Bird. And this is basically like an exposition of finding Christ in the Old Testament. I'm most of the way through this book. It's fantastic. This is not like your little Sunday school book of like, oh, here's where you see Jesus. Remember, Paul said Christ was that rock. It is way more in depth, way more beautiful, way more thorough. It's wonderful and glorious. So if you'd like to win a copy of The Christ Key by Chad Bird, here's what you need to do. You need to go to Apple Podcasts, and all you need to do is rate the podcast. You can rate it whatever you want. We're not going to be one of those pockets that's like, give us five stars, because we know in God's sovereignty, you will give us five stars. But <laughs> go and rate the podcast, and then you just need to send a screenshot to us at info at reformbrotherhood.com, confirming the rate and review. Uh, what about Scandalous Stories? How can people get a copy of that? Uh, what we'd like you to do to get Scandalous Stories is to go to uh, Facebook.com. We just said this was Facebook. Twitter. Twitter. Twitter.com. <laughs> ignore me. Uh, don't ignore me, but ignore what I said. Go to Twitter.com uh, if you are a Twitter person and uh, share the podcast somehow. Share the whole podcast, the, the link to the podcast. Share an episode you love somewhere that has a link to our show. And then take a screenshot of that and send it into info at reformbrotherhood.com. And lastly, we have one more we're giving away. It's called The Night Driving. It's also by Chad Bird. This is actually his personal story. It is deep. It is raw. It is moving. It is confrontational. It will make you think. It's a short read, but it is actually, I feel like it's required reading for understanding forgiveness and yeah. processing and moving on, having made difficult mistakes. So if you want to win a copy of Night Driving, this is where you go to Facebook and you share the podcast on the Book of Face. And then once again, just send to info at reformbrotherhood.com 
a nice little screenshot showing yes. that you have done as much. So you can look these up in case you want to figure out which one you want to win. You can only win one. You can enter all three, though. The Christ Key, Scandalous Stories, which, by the way, is a sort of commentary on the parables. That's their subtitle. And then Night Driving. Yes. So there you go. And you, uh, you can put in your submissions until... Uh, what did we say? August 3rd, because Jesse and I will record that next episode on September 5th. So I guess we'll call this like our summer of Lutheranism giveaway or something like that. Uh, so make sure your email, if you're if you're interested in winning a book, make sure that that email to us with a screenshot of your entry or entries uh, is received by us by fe- uh, August. Uh, sorry, that's September 3rd. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Man, I just, I don't know what's happened to me. I, I can't even podcast anymore. Make sure we no, receive that by good. Friday, uh, September 3rd. So that when we record on fr- on Sunday, September 5th or thereabouts, that we are able to draw a winner. And then you'll hear right, that announcement on the 10th. This is great. Best contest ever. So everybody <laughs> go out, do some sharing, take some screenshots, send them to info at And until next time, Tony, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Ah.